Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. We're here for a very exciting night, and I want to welcome everyone to Marin Conversations. Tonight, we've got kind of a serious topic. Let's just face it. Luckily, we have some serious experts, one of the leading experts on the subject. I don't think uh, Deborah Lipstadt needs an introduction, particularly here you know, in our country and even in our county. This is such a sensitive subject, and it's so exciting to have two experts here. So Dr. Mark Dollinger is here from uh, San Francisco State University, and he's going to carry this conversation and with, with Deborah. Thank you both for coming. In your uh, note to the reader that opens your book, you write the following. I've attempted as much as possible to set my passions aside and see matters with a scholar's analytic perspective. But we are who we are. I cannot, therefore, claim to have been totally dispassionate about what I have encountered. To open our conversation tonight, and by way of introduction, the first question is, who are you? Now, It's probably true that most people here know that you are the nation's leading scholar on Holocaust studies on the Shoah, that you were sued by a Holocaust denier, put on trial in London, uh, where, if you're not aware, the libel laws are reversed, so Professor Lipstadt had to prove her innocence. It became a major motion picture in 2016 called Denial with Rachel Weiss, and I just have to share the story you shared on Facebook, that she was on an airplane walking down the aisle and somebody was watching her on the movie screen. <laughs> and she tapped him on the shoulder and said, that's me, you know? <laughs> First I asked them if they liked it. <laughs> that's a pretty cool moment to get to have. And you're the author, uh, most recently, of course, of anti-Semitism here and now. There's a deeper part of the question, though, that's related to your quote. In, in, the, uh, in the reader's note. What does it mean to be a scholar of the Holocaust and a public intellectual in these times? Scholars are supposed to write dispassionate, third-person, critical analyses of their subjects. Rabbi, Rabbi Leiter is here, and other Jewish leaders are supposed to strengthen the Jewish people and, of course, protect them, certainly from anti-Semitism. How, then, do you see your role as an active, engaged, identified Jew who writes as a scholar on a subject of interest to lay audiences at a time when we really need the readers of your book. That, that has more sub-clauses <laughs> in that. <laughs> Could be a lawyer's question. You have all evening? Um, there are a lot of people here who know me, know me very well, and know me for decades. Um, and I would say it's it's fair to say that I wear many hats or yarmulkes, as the, as the case may be. Um, one of them is to try to be a dispassionate scholar, um, to, to, to write about what happened, uh, and not to skew it in any way, or at least if I'm going to give a personal opinion or skew something, make it very clear that I'm doing that. Uh, because I think if you, if you lose your or if you let your passion, especially about something as horrible as a genocide of the proportions of the Holocaust, you're not of any use to the reader, to your student. Um, When I first began teaching about the Holocaust, my very earliest courses at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I first began to teach about it, 
I I don't want to say I, I emoted all up, but I did emote much more than I do now. And I, over the to- course of time, I came to realize that, remember Dragnet Joe Friday, Just the Facts? Now, I want to point out he only said that to the women. It was Just the Facts, ma'am, because the idea was that only women got emotional. Uh, but, but just the facts. I think the facts, when you're writing about the Holocaust, speak for themselves. If I have to tell my students or an audience such as this that this was horrible, this was the worst thing ever, there's something wrong with the teaching I've done because it should speak for itself that it's bad and it's horrible, etc. But coupled with that is um, I'm, I'm a passionate Jew. Um, it's part of my identity. It's not something I choose to put on or to take off. It's as much part of my identity that, as a woman. You know, I'm, that's who I am. It's integral uh, to how I see the world, how I was raised, you know, everything. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to divide between those two. And especially when I was writing this book, it was particularly difficult because, first of all, in that note to the reader, which you obviously have read very closely, um, I point out the fact that um, it was a hard book to write. And I couldn't figure out why it was a hard book to write. I've written about horrible things. I've been in court with horrible people. I wrote about it. You know, why was this harder? You know, Manish Tana, this book from from other books. Um, And it dawned on me that I was writing about the present. And because each day I was going back and adding things or postponing turning the manuscript in because something else had happened. This time last summer, I was copy editing. I had received the copy edited manuscript. And those of you who have written books or edited books, you know that when you get the copy edited manuscript, generally the agreement, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit agreement, is that you're not going to make major changes. It's a little easier to do today with digital. I mean, when it used to be already laid out, if you're going to add something, you had to take something out somewhere else. Uh, But I called my editor and I said, listen, I've got to add stuff. A a woman in Paris, a Holocaust survivor in Paris was just murdered in her apartment. Jeremy Corbyn, it was just exposed, went to the memorial of the Munich, the people who conducted the Munich massacre. Uh, uh, There's the whole Polish Holocaust law, which had just was all in, 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 in much debate and discussion this time last summer. I said, I've got to add stuff. So, um, she said, okay, she understood. Um, and then at one point she called me and she said, so I said, so it's, it's a hard book to write. It's, it's an impossible book to finish. But at one point she, she called me, I think it was about uh, right around Labor Day, and she said, Deborah, we need, you got you to gotta stop because it's in the, it's in the catalog. It's, it's going to come out. Uh, we're selling it. We've got orders for it. Um, we need the manuscript to go into production. And the last thing I write, or one of the last things I write in that note is that, though I don't like to predict by the time this book appears, I know something will have happened that should have been included. And that was the first week in September, and, and six weeks later or five weeks later came, came Pittsburgh. And it, but, I'm, but I'm optimistic. I mean, even though I deal with this horrible, horrible stuff, I'm really a pretty optimistic person, which makes no sense at all. Um, but, well, it does make sense. 
Mirzainen da, as the partisan song goes, Nachnu Po, as it goes in Hebrew. You know, we're here. Uh, we're not supposed to, we shouldn't be by any, by any barometer of historical measurement, we shouldn't be here. So it's that optimism, but, but when I'm writing about it to write the facts. And, and the last point I'll make on this is that especially with this fight against anti-Semitism. One of the things that disturbs me over and above the anti-Semitism, which disturbs all of us, I mean, you're all here on a nice summer evening listening to a depressing topic. We really are crazy, you know? Um, but, and we're worried and we're scared and we're gobsmacked, as my British friends would say. Like, where did this come from, you know? Um, but... I worry that to some degree we are so worried about this we're losing sight of the affirmative aspects of Jewish life. So that, that also bothers, worries me. Thank you. And that actually segues well uh, into another quote I want to read. But first, welcome, everybody. Great to see everyone here. Um, what's going to happen tonight is we'll chat for about 45 or 50 minutes. We'll get about 10 minutes of questions from uh, from you all. Uh, and then Professor Lipstadt will sign books for you out where you checked in. So that's kind of our schedule. Um, in keeping, really, transitioning from what you just said, uh, in the opening paragraph to the book, you write, as horrific as the Holocaust was, it is... Fr- oh, let me give you the question first, and I'll give the quote. Th- this is a book on the contemporary period, and you are a, an historian. So the question is, like, what's it like to do a, a contemporary book instead of a history book? And you reflect on that by saying, as horrific as the Holocaust was, it is firmly in the past. When I write about it, I'm writing about what was. Though I remain horrified by what happened, it is history. Contemporary anti-Semitism is not It is about the present. It is what many people are doing, saying, and facing now. And she put that in italics. That gave this subject an immediacy that no historical act possesses. So you've done a half dozen books on the Shoah and Holocaust studies. This one is different because you have stepped away from the ability to put things in the past tense. For you, what what was that like? Well, as I said, it it was tough. Um, and what I had to make sure was that I was separating out my own political proclivities, my own particular way of seeing the world from what I was analyzing. You know, and I think that that's one of the problems we see today with the fight against anti-Semitism within the Jewish community, but not only the Jewish community. Actually, it goes well beyond the Jewish community. And I call it the weaponizing of anti-Semitism. So people who tend to the political right see it very clearly on the political left, and they're right, they're correct. They're correct to see it there. And people on the political left see it on the political right, and they're correct to see it there, but they don't see what's right next to them or in their own uh, circles. And Or they use it as a cudgel to beat up on the other side. Um, and here I was trying to sort of stand above the fray um, and try to see it everywhere. And... Um, you know, I, some of you follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, and other things. Uh, at one point, I was being attacked as a a lefty. She's a lefty. You can't believe anything she says. And someone else was attacking me. And she's so far to the right that it's completely skewed. So I knew I got it precisely right, you know. Um, 
I'll just say that scholarly books are all fascinating and interesting and easy to read. And that said, some people here may not agree with that particular assertion. You opted for this book to write in the format of letters, letters with a sort of mythical or composite student and colleague, and then you were able to express the content of what you wanted to through that medium. If you could talk about sort of why you picked the letters for Well, it, it wasn't, actually, it wasn't my idea. Um, I started to write, the book grew out of an op-ed I had in the New York Times shortly after the Gaza War, where I said, there's, I see anti-Semitism. I'm one of those who always have said, come on, calm down, let's not instrumentalize anti-Semitism to whip up Jewish identity, to whip up fundraising, whatever it might be. Um, but I said, after Gaza, I've seen a lot of anti-Semitism, and not all of it is related to Gaza. And I began the op-ed with, you know, what's the definition of a Jewish telegram? Start worrying, details follow, you know? <laughs> so um, I'm sure that's why the Times accepted it. Um, but... Uh, and then my uh, agent, my literary agent, called me and said, well, where's the book proposal? I said, what are you talking about? It was an op-ed. He said, look how much attention it's gotten, because now you can track how popular, how many people say, and, and we all do that, you know. Uh, people say, oh, I don't pay attention to that. Don't believe them. Um, so uh, I said, oh, I don't want to wallow in the sewers of anti-Semitism. He said, Deborah, there's a book here, and you have something to say. So just to get him off my back, I wrote a short proposal. He sold it and I had to write the book. So about, and I was in the midst of finishing up another book, and I finished that one up, and I turned to this one almost, you know, without a break. And it was so boring. I was falling asleep writing it. And I kept thinking, you know, there's a concept in Jewish life, which you know, tsar, balei, chayim, kindness for living things. I said, my readers... You know, uh, except for those with insomnia, this is going to be a terrible thing. For those with insomnia, it'll be great. It'll put them to sleep. I didn't know how to put my head around the topic. Do I do it country by country? I'm not an expert in each country. I would have had to go and spend a lot of time in each of these places. Do I do it chronologically? I just didn't know how to do it. And a friend of mine who actually has written a study guide uh, to the book now for the Covenant Foundation called me, Erica Brown called me, and she, she knew, because I, I had told her, I said, Erica, I can't write this, this is just horrible, whatever. And I said, but I signed a contract, so I have to. Um, she called me one day, right before Shabbat, and she said, letters, do letters. And I said, what? She said, write it as letters, bye. And <laughs> she hung up, and then I thought about it, and I went back through my notes and my emails and memories and, and others, you know, and a lot of written records, and I saw all the exchanges I've had with colleagues, with friends, with lay people, with students, um, students in my classes, students outside my classes, students at different campuses that I go to. You know, often I'll give a lecture and a student will wait around to the end to ask a question and I'll turn to them and there are other people there. And they'll say, oh, I can wait, I can wait. So I, they, they want to be the last one. And then they'll say to me, I want to share with you an anecdote. This and this happened in my dorm, or this and this happened in my class. Was it anti-Semitism? Was it an anti-Semitism, et cetera? So what I did is I took a, uh, uh, all those things that they had asked, and I, at first I created these, this Jewish student and a non-Jewish colleague, fictional characters. So at least a dozen people have said to me, oh, you based it on me, didn't you? Um, <laughs> 
you know, so, and, uh, and, uh, but composites, but everything that comes, they're fictional, but everything that comes out of their mouth is real. It's usually the opposite. You know, you have historical characters and um, what they say, they're real, but what comes out of their mouth is fictional. Here's a flip. And it got, I wanted it first, first of all, I wanted this book to be accessible. I didn't want it to be a book read by 12 people who write on the topic, you know. Um, I really wanted it to be accessible uh, to students and not students, people interested, obviously, in it, but, but to make it, and and I also wanted it to have a conversational tone. So it was a whole different kind of way of writing for me, um, which I think works. Most people seem to like it. So, um, but that was how it came back. Came out of frustration, and then the suggestion of a friend who hung up. You know, that's helpful for all of us who are writers, by the way, to hear that story. Um, just so you know, this is going to be a baseball cap question, and I'm going to okay. give I'm going to give them the lead in. Uh-huh. Uh, as an undergraduate history major at Berkeley, I was asked to write a final exam question in medieval European history on the meaning and significance of the potato. It turns out the potato was a very important thing in medieval Europe. So if all of us here today were to enroll in your course on contemporary anti-Semitism, how would we prepare your final exam question? What is the meaning and significance of the baseball cap? Baseball, baseball cap. Yes. Oh, okay. Took me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, today people say, I don't want to wear a yarmulke, I don't want to wear a kippah, because then you can, you know, so they, so guys are all wearing baseball caps, right? I got on a plane two, uh, last summer, two summers ago, and um, there was a group on the plane that was flying out of JFK from a, a local synagogue, and they were very excited that they were going to meet their rabbi and other members of the synagogue for a tour of European Jewish sites in Europe. And we were chatting, and then it was time to take off, and we all settled into our sleep, uh, seats, went to sleep. And all these guys who in JFK had been wearing kippot, when we got a, I woke up and we were landing, I think, at Charles de Gaulle, kippot were gone, baseball caps. You know, they're all wearing baseball caps because of not wanting to, they'd been warned not to walk around in uh, kippot. So I bid them farewell, and I hope they had a good trip, and I flew on to German, to Berlin. I'm spending time in Berlin lecturing and et cetera. And I want, I was told that there's a synagogue in Berlin, uh, in a sort of obscure area, uh, that, um, for cantorial music plays, uh, sings pieces of Lewandowski. If any of you know your, your Chazanut, your, your cantorial music, he was a very famous, uh, composer. My father loved Lewandowski. So I said, oh, this would be a great tribute. My father would have gone to this place. I'm going to go to this place. So I asked someone, how do I find it? So they gave me directions and they said, it's a little complicated, but once you get to the street, um, just look up and down the street, and I said, I know, look for the gendarmes. You look for the, pe- the, the policemen with, with machine guns. They actually have automatic rifles, um, and you know that you're there. And he said, but if you have trouble finding it and walking from the direction you're walking, just look for men in baseball caps and follow the guys in baseball caps. So I laughed at him. I found it without any problem, and I got there. Then from there I went to Venice, um, and... 
I was looking, some, someone in Venice had suggested to me that I eat in a particular restaurant. This is a person who doesn't keep kosher at all, who, who revels in trafe, you know, uh, um, who said to me, this kosher restaurant is really, has really good food and good Italian restaurant. So if someone like that is recommending it, you really should go because that's a real recommendation. You know, not someone who can eat in three restaurants and says it's when it's really good. Um, so, but you know, it's very easy to get lost in Venice. I mean, that's, I'm sure the tourists who are still there wandering around, the, they lost, they missed their cruise ship that's come and gone. Um, and I couldn't find it. And I saw three guys in front of me in baseball caps. And on a whim, I followed them straight to the restaurant. <laughs> so, you know, we think we're, we're going undercover. Yeah. Not so much. We're not. Right. We're not. Uh, I'm going to move from the book now to the contemporary scene sure. and, and, and to move from there. Um, I think I can speak on behalf of the group to say we would imagine you would be the person least surprised about anti-Semitism. Yet in the book you wrote, quote, Charlottesville left me dumbfounded. When you're left dumbfounded, I think it's safe to say we're left scared so what has been so dumbfounding and scary in the current scene, even or especially for you? You know, it's interesting. Charlottesville did leave me dumbfounded. Pittsburgh left me shocked but not surprised. Because I think in part Charlottesville and other things I had been tracking. What, what left me dumbfounded about Charlottesville was the, not the hatred but the brazenness of the hatred, the willingness of this this group, uh, mainly guys, but not only guys, and women were there too, uh, to be so open about their hatred. That they hated didn't surprise me. That they felt it was okay to be open shocked me. I'm not anymore. Early a couple of months ago, any of you from the Washington D.C. area, you know, or you've spent time there, you know, the bookstore Politics and Prose, which is an institution in in D.C. Um, you know, after you visit all the sites, you go visit Politics and Prose. Um, and there was a professor there speaking about white supremacy. He's against it, you know. And um, a group of white supremacists first demonstrated outside and then came inside the store to challenge him. People who would never before have had the audacity to do this in public. It wasn't the attitude or the views, but it was the publicity of the views. The other thing about Charlottesville that didn't surprise me because it was very familiar, I recognized it immediately, if you go back to look at some tonight, go home and ask Mrs. Google to find for you, um, uh, you know, put a video Charlottesville or watch the, go watch the last few minutes of the Black Klansmen, you know, um, and look at what they're wearing. They all look like they came out of a J. Crew catalog or something, you know, khakis and polo, white polo shirts and things like that. You won't see, and no one was wearing uh, white power T-shirts. Uh, you won't see, uh, you didn't see pseudo-Nazi uniforms as you might have seen. And, and afterwards I learned that they had been instructed 
not to do that. And the reason it felt familiar to me is it's the exact tactic used by Holocaust deniers. Holocaust deniers are anti-Semites, end of story. There's, it's, not, it's not an intellectual mistake. Oh, they missed one document. If only they could find this particular document. It's funny with Holocaust deniers because they accuse Jews of forging all these documents which prove the Holocaust happened. And then they say, but just show me the document saying I, Hitler, hereby ordered the Holocaust. Well, we forged all the other documents. Why didn't we forge that one, you know? Um, but but that ra- rational is not one of their strong suits. Um, but but they parade as academics. You know this. They don't call themselves deniers. They say we are revisionists, which, as you know, as a historian, other historians here, people who've studied history, you know, revisionism is an accepted approach to history. I live in when I'm there. I live in the South. I'm not there that often, but I live in the, in Atlanta, in a city surrounded on four sides by Georgia. Um, <laughs> You know, they say the further north you go out of the, out of George out of Atlanta, the more in the deep south you are. Um, but if you read a history of the South written sixty years ago, even fifty years ago, it's a history of white male, primarily slave owners, white male, wealthy white males. Today, if someone wrote a history of the South that way and didn't include women and didn't include the story of the slaves, they'd be say. You know, so it's, we have revised. Revising is something that is commonly done. The first, the first people called revisionists, in fact, were, were the people who said Dreyfus, uh, Captain Dreyfus wasn't guilty. They were revising a commonly held belief of, that everybody commonly felt he was guilty, and they were saying, like Zola and others, Emil Zola and others, were saying he wasn't. So revisionism is respected. It's an, it sometimes is an edgy, when it's first proposed, it's an edgy way, but often it becomes the mainstream. So when Holocaust deniers went, sort of, uh, cleaned up their act, they said, we're not deniers, we're revisionists. We're just trying to revise mistakes in history. They presented themselves as sort of academics. It's the same way as people said, oh, I'm not a white supremacist, I just think African Americans are genetically inferior, other kind of stuff. But they presented it as if they were scientists doing this. And Charles Murray, others, you know, like that. Um, and so when I saw that, I said, These, this is part of the plan to present as, not as neo Nazis. Their big mistake was chanting, Jews will not replace us. And and it just we were talking. That was the, that revealed to people who they were. What did they mean by that? On the right, on the far right, it's the guy in Pittsburgh, the guy in Poway in San Diego, um, the guy in Arkansas who was who the police discovered before he was able to do his damage, etc. Um, and so many others. In the on the far right, there is a belief in white replacement genocide. Where the they the argument is made that the white Christian is being replaced by people of color, by people from Africa, by Muslims, by people who are uh, want to eradicate white Christian culture, but they're people of color, so they're lesser than. 
You know, this is the racist attitude. The racist, as I say in the book, punches down. These people are lesser than. They will replace us. They will degrade white Christian culture. They will degrade, uh, degrade the society, etc. But since they're lesser than, how are they capable of doing this to great white Christian culture? Well, the way they're capable of doing it is behind, who is manipulating them behind the scenes? The Jew. Yeah. So that that whole so I was I recognized it, but I was shocked by the brazenness of it. I have to say, two years uh, Charlottesville now is exactly uh, two years ago. Um, I'm not shocked anymore. Um, we're in Marin County right now, and uh, even here we experience anti-Semitism. Uh, we're in the town of Tiburon, uh, and anti-Semitic graffiti was painted at an elementary school here. I think I sent you an article on that. In both middle schools and high schools throughout Marin County, um, students are internalizing anti-Semitic tropes and using them on Jewish classmates, you know, se- seemingly w- with, without even understanding or certainly without any fear. Even though those of us who live in this county, and, and I do, are in arguably one of the most liberal and one of the most wealthy counties in the country, um, how is it? Or, or what can you tell us about this intersection of Jews, of politics from the left and the right, this economic privilege, and, and the persistence of anti-Semitism? I, I think what makes today different is that we're seeing anti-Semitism from the left and from the right in equal... We've seen it before from either or, but we're seeing it in equal proportions from both sides. And it's not different to anti-Semitism. Both sides use the same tropes. Both sides use the same stereotypes, the same memes, whatever whatever word you want to use. They're making the same argument. Jews are rich, Powerful, smart, but in a nefarious, malicious, dangerous kind of way. Um, so uh, we're seeing it in and and the 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 idea that if someone is liberal, they're immune to this. It make it's not true. It's not true at all. It's it's. Uh, yeah, I, I recently read an article by Professor Alan Johnson from from the United Kingdom. And he described, he was looking, he's a member of the Labor Party, he has decided to stay as part of the Labor Party because he says that's the way I can fight the anti-Semitism best from within. Um, and it's an article, of, it's in an online journal called Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M. Um, and he really goes into a myriad of examples of anti-Semitism in the Labor Party. But in the article, he described anti-Semitism as a piano on which different, vastly different tunes can be played. I found this very instructive because the original tune was a Christian theological tune, a Christian starting now and then moving from the Catholic Church to the Protestant Church, Martin Luther um, engaging it, and then moving to people who were who are opponents of the church, Voltaire. Voltaire is an ardent opponent of the power of the Catholic Church, certainly in France, engaging in overt anti-Semitism, and then moving to people who are opponents of all religion, Karl Marx. Moving to pseudo scientists, so the but the 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 notes are always the same: money, power, intellect used evil, used nefariously, used maliciously, and it's also the picking up something that starts out in a theological context. 
the demonization of the Jews. Trachtenberg had from, from way back in, in, in I think, the 30s, uh, um, the, the Devil and the Jews, or the, uh, I forget the exact title, um, but the Jew is turned into the devil. What do I want? The devil, in Christian theology, the devil had a unique stance. The devil, A, was the only entity that could harm God. And B, you didn't know you encountered the devil till after the devil had come and gone and the damage was done. And I think that is also something that moves out of out of uh, religious context, moves to the right, moves to the left. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the whole Rothschild and the, the Jewish financier, um, the Jewish financier who manipulates society but behind the scenes. So it's there. And a question on the denial book and the assault on truth. Um, so you've discussed the debate over whether or not you should have written a book on Holocaust deniers initially. You know, why give a platform to bigots and then ultimately you need to. I don't want to focus on that question. I, I've, I've been very curious about the second part of the book's title, um, which, which is The Assault on Truth and Memory. So um, we are in a moment now, it seems, when truth and what is truth is under assault, and memory and what is memory is under assault. And as I was reflecting back years ago when there was a debate over whether or not you should have authored the book on deniers, then I thought, wow, Professor Lipstadt has written a book to talk about the threat society faces with an assault on truth and memory. So just to say, is there a relationship between your research and the concept of fake news? Um, I don't know if there's a relationship, but I I'm very – I think my antennae, you know, are sort of raised more to the dangers of fake news. Because um, when I first, as, as you, you correctly note, and I write about it in the book, and I write about it in, in History on Trial, the book now called Denial. I don't know where they got that name from. But, um, but um, that when I first started to write about deniers, people said to me, why are you wasting your time on this? Who's going to buy that? Who's interested? It's, it's a waste of time, et cetera. And I also worried that I was giving them oxygen. I was giving them attention. Um, but I think it's very important to be aware of these issues and to see how you're being manipulated. Are you being manipulated? And today, and I know how, when people said to me, oh, who would believe deniers? It's not hard. It's not hard for, when an idea is distasteful, an event is disturbing, when you don't want to believe something, or it conflicts with how you think about the world, it's easier to say, no, it's not true. It didn't happen. Or vice versa, when something affirms your belief, it's easier to say, yes, it is true. I think that in this day and age, with the internet, which I'm not beating up on because I do my research on it, I, I use it consistently, but um, and with politicians willing to build a fa fake news is something that they may not like or that they don't like, that we have an added responsibility to check things out. 
to do that homework, to stop before you repost something or you retweet something and see, is this really correct? Uh, a number of months ago, there was some uh, news story showing that a far, far, far right uh, conservative politician had said something just awful, just awful. And I said, oh, I'm going to repost this. And I was about to hit repost, and I said, wait a minute, this is so awful that if he had really said this, it would be all over the Internet. And I haven't seen any other source. So I took it, and I just put it in Google, in the search engine and to look for it, and the only source for it was the source I was about to post. So clearly, it wasn't a real source. But it's so important. And the other, it's not just that you spread these negative ideas, but what we're also seeing, and this should concern everyone, but certainly if you're concerned about anti-Semitism, the reason that anti-Semitism is so corrosive, the reason that it's so dangerous, many reasons, but amongst them, I mean, it's an, it's an ism, it's a prejudice like other, like racism, homophobia, lots of other isms. It's, it's, it's a prejudice, prejudged. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. Um, but it has a unique, a number of unique elements. And one of the unique elements, and I alluded to earlier when I was talking about power, intellect, this one, and, the, and the devil, is a cons- it's a conspiracy theory. Whereas other prejudices aren't necessary, aren't that. The, that the Jew is conspiring. He's conspiring against the whole society. He's conspiring to bring down the society. She's conspiring to do harm to the society. Well, if you believe in conspiracy theories and you believe that someone is making these things up, there was no moon landing, uh, the banks are controlled, the media is all in the hands of, of certain people and, and doing what they want to do. AIDS is not a virus, it was all, or vaccines cause harm, and it's just big pharma that wants you to vaccinate your child or something like that. You, the, the FBI is corrupt, the judges are corrupt. You, you create a doubt in the fundamental institutions of a democracy. That doesn't mean there isn't sometimes corruption, but if you believe ipso facto, a priori, they are corrupt, then you have, you have undermined your faith in democracy. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Um, Appropriation of the words concentration camp, and I'll build on to that. Wiesel said that never again for Jews demands that Jews take the lead against you know, any kind of genocide, that this was a particular Jewish responsibility to the world, that the Shoah should be a model to inspire all of us to make sure that it never happens again. And there's a fight, as we know, on appropriating the words concentration camp, which engages a whole lot of issues even beyond the Shoah. But that said, where do you land on the intersection between using Holocaust language expressing solidarity with with other oppressed groups, recognizing the particularity of anti-Semitism and the Shoah while keeping Wiesel's promise. 
Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that early in the wars in the former Yugoslavia, Elie Wiesel went to a camp uh, where I believe it was mainly Muslim men were being held. There's a famous picture. It was on the front page of the uh, many newspapers worldwide. And these men looked gaunt. They obviously were being starved. And Wiesel went to call attention to, to that. I was present at the dedication of the Holocaust Memorial, and Wiesel turned around to President Clinton. Vice President Gore was there as well, and he said, you must do something. I have been there. Uh, I was just in D.C. a few days ago, and I drove past the Holocaust Museum, and, and there's a sign about what's going on in Syria, the, 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 the call it a genocide, call it what it, massacres, but the, the horrors of, of what's going on in Syria. So I think the, the Holocaust has many significant elements, uh, you know, significant is even a strong enough word. First of all, for Jews, it means that one out of every three Jews on the face of the earth was killed. One, two, three, dead. One, two, three, dead. Just think about that. And we haven't replaced ourselves, really, since it. Um, but it has other implications as well. You know, never again is a wonderful motto, but it's not true. You know, uh, Darfur, Rwanda, uh, there have been, been numerous genocides, uh, former Yugoslavia, there have been numerous genocides uh, and mass killings uh, since then. Um, I, having, and I think it, 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 one of the things, I'm not saying that you can stop everything, but, but it, I think for those of us who care about the Holocaust and think that it's really a significant element, not just in terms of the life of the Jewish people, but in the world. Um, raising it about other genocides is important. At the same time, last year, um, a year before this debate, um, when people were talking about the, the separation of children which, from the families and the immigration policy, which I think is a horrific policy, uh, someone happened to be a former member of uh, President Bush II's cabinet, so a, a Republican, posted a, a, a article or a comment condemning it with a picture of the gates of Beer Canal. And I, that prompted me to write something in The Atlantic, uh, which actually I'd forgotten about till this debate about AOC's comment on, and The Atlantic retweeted about it, um, that while I think the policy is horrific, it's not a Holocaust. It's not an attempted wiping out of an entire people. This is not a competitive Olympics in suffering. No, no, fine. I'm being, I'm being dead serious, and I use that word consciously. If I came in here and said to you, it's very hard for me to speak, I have an impacted tooth, and someone said to me, oh, I have two, I wouldn't feel any better. Comparative victimhood doesn't, you know, if you say to an Armenian person, well, yes, your family was killed in this terrible genocide, but you should know that the Turks weren't out to kill Armenians in Berlin, whereas the Germans were, were going to the Isle of Rhodes in August 44, July, August 44, uh, to collect, after the landing at Normandy, to, to gather up the Jews, the ancient Jewish community there, taking boats and going there to bring them, um, that when you go to a beer canal, you're told that there were plans for additional gas chambers through 46, when they knew they were losing the war. I mean, it's, 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 it's stupefying.
But at the same time, um, I think that gives us a special obligation to speak out on other genocides. I've been to Rwanda a number of times. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's, uh, 800,000 people were murdered in, in, I think, two months, something like that. It's, it's a horrific kind of development. So when we say never again, it's not really true. Now, but I don't like glib comparisons to the Holocaust. Something can be horrific. Something can be deeply disturbing. Something can be completely wrong without being akin to a Holocaust. I think if you make these glib comparisons, um, it's wrong. It's historically wrong, and it cheapens the element of, of what you're saying. If you want to go to specifics and, and representative um, or AOC, as she's called, um, and her comments, I think they were wrong. I think it was, you know, because she said never, yes, concentration camps, as a historian, I have to say that the term concentration camps has its roots in the Boer War, uh, when the British built concentration camps in South Africa, um, and they were called concentration camps. But she linked concentration camps and never again. And that was a direct analogy to the Holocaust. I think it's it's historically wrong. I also think it's strategically wrong because the whole debate became, is it a Holocaust? Isn't it a Holocaust? Is it akin to the Holocaust? Is it is it not akin to the Holocaust? Instead of, is it wrong or is it, should it be or shouldn't it be? I think it's, it's a mistake in that way. Um, and then you get, of course, Holocaust inversion, particularly in relation to Israel, and I think Holocaust inversion is a form of anti-Semitism, where you use tropes related to the Nazis to describe Jews, particularly in terms of Israel, but not only in that. Uh, to close, I have two related questions, or you could decide if they're related okay. questions. Uh, the first one, if you weren't a scholar of the Holocaust, what would you have liked to be? And that's related to uh, the question of what's your next book? Uh-huh. Um, well, I'll start on the second one. My next book, um, I haven't yet officially uh, signed on it, et cetera, but it will be something very different, having nothing to do with anti If I ever get to write it, um, anti-Semitism, I'm hoping to do a biography possibly of Golda Meir uh, because I think she was a terrific woman, and I think we don't know enough about her, and uh, she's remembered negatively because of the Yom Kippur War. But um, if you look at... She was a minister of labor in the 50s, and Israel instituted some of the most far-reaching legislation protecting women, protecting uh, children, uh, labor of children, protecting length of hours way before the Scandinavian countries had them. so And that was all Golda Meir's doing. So that may well be. I, I need a rest from this. I need a respite. Um, what was the first question? If you, were, if you weren't a scholar of the Holocaust, what? What would I really like to be? I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Because I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm going to turn. The reason I haven't thought about it is because, um, well, I, actually, at one point I wanted to be a child psychologist, but that was because when I was a kid I was very unhappy, and I was helped by a child psychologist. So, no, it was, you know, it was very, it was a nice thing. Um, but 
I haven't thought about it because I feel, even though I deal with a subject that is depressing and difficult, and now not only is it depressing and difficult, but it's immediate. It's every day. I mean, you know, every every minute every there's a, something going on. Um, it's very gratifying to be in, to be working in a field where people are really concerned, and I have a sense that I can help in a little way in, in understanding what's going on. I mean, I, I spoke jocularly at the beginning that you're all here on a summer night, um, and I don't know if that would have been the case but two years ago. And I, I really, I feel in the sense people's worry, their concern, um, and, and it makes me very sad. Um, and I think we we have a right, and we should be worried, and we should be concerned. And maybe to, to close on this, because I know we're going to open up to questions, um, I think there's a danger not just of what the anti-Semites will do to Jews and to Jewish life, but what we will do to Jewish life because of our concerns. Speaking now, putting on my, my not my historian's kippah, but my Jewish kippah or whatever, as my, my Jewish identity, what we will do because of our fear of anti-Semitism. And the, the last piece of the book is called, you know, Oi to Joy, or, or uh, I forget exactly how I could look, but you can all look too. Um, and that we're going to reach a point where we're going to say we should be Jews because, dafka lahachis, we say, just to make them angry, I'm going to be stronger in my Jewish identity. I had a student come into my office not long ago, and suddenly he's wearing a kippah. And I didn't say the first thing out of my mouth was, what's with the headgear? But, um, you know, I kept him talking, talking, talking. He said, do you see my kippah? I said, oh, I hadn't noticed. Um, and he says, I'm wearing it to show the anti-Semites. And I was thinking... There are many reasons to wear a kippah, but I'm not sure showing the anti-Semites should be the motivating factor. It's the afalp, you know, we say in Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah, even though afalp, he may tarry nonetheless. And there was a, one of the ships, like the Exodus, was called the afalp, um, nonetheless. It should be despite, not because of. And I think the challenge we face... I'll, I'll end with a story which some of you have heard me tell before. It's a, I end the book with this, is that I was walking into the into my synagogue, which I used to belong to. I quit, and now I've rejoined because they've left Young Israel, but that's a whole other story. Um, and I was walking in with two friends of mine, a mother and her daughter, and her daughter was then about five. And I read with this little girl every night. We read over Skype, or if I'm in Atlanta, we read it in her house, etc. We're, we're, we're good buddies. And as we walked in, the mother said to the little girl, say thank you to the police officer for keeping us safe. And this little girl looked completely perplexed. Because to her, the synagogue is a happy place. She gets there at 9.30 on Shabbat morning, her parents go into the sanctuary. She peels off and goes to the playground, runs around like a maniac. You know, it's much longer than recess till they're, you know, brought into children's services, which at her age is games and songs and snacks. 
You know, and then at the end of the services, they go into the sanctuary where they lead the uh, Adonalam, and the rabbi gives them lollipops. It's a sugar high, you know, and then they go to the Kiddush. And if you took five-year-olds into a room with 200 other people, you'd say to them, now stay in my, maybe you'd say stay next to me, or maybe if you want to be really open and show how liberal, stay in my line of sight. You know, I can see you this way. Don't go to other, but there, every kids are running around everywhere because everyone feels very safe and they're filling their plates with, you know, chips and cookies and cakes and avoiding anything protein, as I like to say, you know, and, and then she goes home at 1230 and it's a happy place. It's not a place where she has to be kept safe. And she knows about unsafe places. We read Roll Doll, you know, peaches rolling over people or whatever. Um, and, and by the way, we don't buy Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl was a flaming anti-Semite. So you take his books out of the library, you don't buy them. Um, <laughs> but so she's looking and she's thinking, for keeping us safe, this is my fun place. I worry that we're going to allow ourselves to be driven by fear by oi and not by joy. So I think that that's exceptionally important. It takes you back to the first question. Somehow I'm still optimistic, and, and, and I revel in the joys of Judaism. I revel in what our tradition in all its manifestations, religion, art, culture, literature, history, has given to the world. We can't just be Jewish object, what's done to Jews. We have to be Jewish subject. On behalf of the Commonwealth Club and Kol Shofar, thank you. Before we start on questions, I'm going to channel my inner Rabbi Eddie Feinstein and say to you, please form your question in the form of a question. Can you give us any realistic hope for the future? Yeah, of course I can give you realistic hope for the future. We're here. And, you know, Mirzayn and Daz, I said earlier, for the partisan song, we're here. Um, and by no rights of any historical precedent. You're a historian. Agree with me. You better. I agree. Um, <laughs> by no logic should we be here. And we're here, and we have schools, and we have institutions. I was just in Poland with a number of people here. And this Polish, this Jewish life being regenerated at the same level before the Shoah? No, of course not. That will never happen. But it's there, and it's happening, and they're Jewish preschools and, and their Jewish programs. It is what it is, as, as my friend Barbara Kirshen Black and Blood says. It's not what it was, but it's not nothing. It's something. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. So if the victory for the anti-Semite would be if we really thought they've won. Thank you. Our next question. Oh, yeah, here we go. Hi, Denver. Um, it's a double question, actually, because you mentioned a lot about the anti-Semitism on the right, which is something we as Jews see coming from far away that light at the end of the tunnel for many years. But my biggest concern is the virulent rise of anti-Semitism on the left that is not addressed uh, enough and is combined with anti-Zionism because the right does not have the anti-Zionism element to the anti-Semitism on the right, and the left does. Okay. Let me and, and, and being that, um, 
I'm also concerned about the anti-Zionism feeling uh, of the Jewish community in general here in America. Okay. So there you okay. have um, Thank you. I, I, th- I thought I talked about both. I talked certainly AOC and others. Um, it's on the right and it's on the left. I think there is a lot of attention to anti-Semitism on the left. Um, certainly we talk about BDS. We talk about but other things. The 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 person not all this is not all progressive leftists but there are many progressive leftists exemplified by the labor party in england whose view of the world is this is the, i've said this many times so some of you may have heard it or have written it write it certainly in the book their their view of the world certainly of prejudice is refracted through a prism a prism bends light. Their prism has a certain number of facets. One facet is ethnicity. One facet is class. One facet is power. They look at Jews and they see white people, even though on the, on the far right, the guys in Pittsburgh and other, you know, you're destroying the white race. The, Charlottesville, you're destroying the white race. But they see white people who are privileged. We know many Jews are not, but that doesn't matter. Uh, who are privileged and therefore have power, who ipso facto cannot be victims. So they say, you couldn't possibly be a victim. You must be saying these things, people in the Labor Party say, to bring down Jeremy Corbyn. You must be saying this to cover up for Israel or something, even though it may have nothing to do with Israel uh, at all, at all, at all. Um, Pittsburgh, the same day as Pittsburgh, the bodies weren't even taken out of the, out of the synagogue. Um, a, a very liberal member of the House of Lords, Dame, uh, Tong, uh, Jenny Tong, I think it is, uh, tweeted, um, this is awful. When will Bibi Netanyahu learn that his policies lead to no good? What happened in Pittsburgh had nothing to do with Bibi Netanyahu, but that's exactly where that person went. So it's on both sides. It's there in both ways, but I think that... And the the other thing that happens with the person on the progressive left, not all, but some, is that they say, and me, I'm I'm a liberal. Ipso facto, I couldn't possibly be prejudiced. You know, Jeremy Corbyn always tells people, my mother marched... Uh, demonstrated at uh, Cable Street. That was the anti-fascist demonstrations in the 30s. So in other words, you couldn't possibly be a victim. I couldn't possibly be a perpetrator. Therefore, you must have other motives. Bring me down, cover up for Israel, etc. In terms of anti-Semitism and, and, and anti-Zionism, and this we could spend a whole evening on, so I'll answer very briefly. Criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism. You want to hear criticism of Israeli policies, go to the Knesset. You know, and after they stop yelling at each other, if you can understand the Hebrew, it's hard because they're really going a mile a minute. Um, but it's this criticism of Israeli policies. Um, but it's when you have that myopic focus of the worst human rights abuse in the world, the only human rights abuse, they're the only ones who are wrong, etc. Uh, or that Zionism by its very nature is racism, then I think you're, you're getting into the anti-Semitic mode. It seems like news cycles get shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and two or three years ago, we heard a lot of stories about college students being victims of anti-Semitic uh, activities, 
kids not wearing, wanting to wear their yarmulkes or their um, Stars of David. And we don't hear that much about it today. Your experience as, uh, as a university professor, what are you seeing today? Well, I, you know, I think um, it depends on what campus you're on. I think the experience of, uh, you know, if you're at Michigan or you're at Columbia, very large universities, very often different from when you're in a smaller university. But I know that that um, the uh, pro-BDS groups have now targeted Emory and targeted smaller liberal arts colleges that have been quieter. Um, I think there are kids on campus. The kids on campus wear their kippot and wear their magan e david and wear their t-shirts from Israel without a problem. And there are other kids, I think, who um, are a little more hesitant about it. I can't give you facts on this, um, but I wonder if... See, I think the, the, the objective of BDS is not BDS. No one is going to boycott. If you boycotted Israel, turn in your cell phone, turn in your stent for your bypass, turn in your you know hip replacement, turn in your latest treatment for Parkinson's, and then go on your merry way. You know, um, limping and, and without your phone and everything, and, and dying from, you know, cardiac arrest. Um... <laughs> The, the objective of BDS and what's going on today is to toxify Israel, to make Israel toxic. And what I fear, this is not a report of what's happening. It's, it's, I know in historians, we, I don't like the present much to predict, but I fear that one of the impact will be Let's take the birthright, the much maligned birthright programs. Some are better, some are worse, but, but they've been so maligned, you know, and, and planting kids on programs on the second day, you know, they walk off. And we know it's all a plant. Um, not to say there isn't room to criticize them, but a kid will decide I'm going to go on a birthright program. But instead of announcing, you know, November when everybody's talking what they're going to do in December over the break, I'm going to Israel. They'll just quietly go to Israel. It's not going to be something they're going to proclaim. They're going to talk about because they don't want to get into this fight. They don't want, they don't want their four years at university to be colored by the debate over the Middle East. Um, so I think that there's some of that happening. I think the, the college campus is still a very much a target. Um, and in many campuses, it is, look, I'm sitting next to you, you know, you should be talking about this. Um, it's verboten to think other than in a very narrow focus about what is right and what is wrong. And um, increasingly on certain campuses, I would argue that Israel is seen as wrong and the variation is how wrong is Israel wrong? So wrong that it shouldn't exist or just wrong that it should be corrected? Would you say that that's yeah, yeah. fair? You've mentioned a, a few times um, in the last two years, um, and in the last two years there's been um, a new president in the White House. And so... but oh, I hadn't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how... Um, the right, the, the Jews, Jews on the right are able to um, support a president that is perhaps pro-Israel and uh, yet is anti-Semitic. And so I just, 
don't understand that hypocrisy, and I'm wondering if you can enlighten me. Well, you know, I can't speak for, for other people and what their beliefs are. First of all, I don't, I don't think Donald Trump is an anti-Semite. And I, I talk I, in the book, it's uh, Larry Summers, the former president at Harvard University and, and secretary of the Treasury, uh, differed this anti-Semitism in intent, and you were just quoting him, right, and anti-Semitism in, in action. In action. And in the book, I talk about enablers of anti-Semitism. I don't know, take somebody's an easier example, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, when I wrote the book, I said I didn't know what's in his heart. I don't know if he's an anti-Semite. At this point, I think case closed. We know the answer. But, but let's say we, you know, but it's, but what's important is not what's in a person's heart. That's between them and their cardiologist, you know. Um, and they won't use a stint, a stent if they're anti-Israel. So they're really off Soros, you know. Um, but it's what they say and what they do and, and how they might use certain things that, that make anti-Semites feel empowered, that convince anti-Semites that they're behind them, whether they are or not. And that's what I'm talking about. And I think we see that on both the right and the left. Um, and we see it, I, I think, uh, President Trump, just certainly in the, in the last week, you know, with his attacks on, on the squad, of, of whom I'm not fans of at least three of them. Certainly the fourth is, a, is, is I think, been unfairly lumped with them, but um, I think have engaged in overt anti-Semitism, certainly, uh, uh, well, certainly uh, Representative Omar, um, which I think it's, 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 it's clear, um, but to sort of continuously use, and they're anti-Israel, and they've made the Israelis feel America has abandoned them, or all those kind of um, references are very dangerous. Because, first of all, it's not true. Most Israelis don't even know who they are. Um, and even if they do, that's not what they feel very much not abandoned by America right now. But it's using, it's weaponizing the anti-Semitism. And that's, that's what worries me. But I don't think it's just in this country. We see it in Hungary. We see it in Poland. We see it in, in national, we see Marine Le Pen in France. Um, we see it on we see it on both the right and the left, and irrespective of where the conversation has taken us tonight, um, I think that that all of us should be obligated to feel motivated to look at what's right next to us, at the people who share our other political beliefs if they're doing this, because that's where you have the most street cred. If you only attack people on the or criticize people on the other side of the political transom, then you know people say, "Well, of course that's predictable. They wouldn't like that." So, so that's that's. But I think we've seen that's what I said at the very beginning when Mark was a, Professor Dollinger was asking me about um, you know uh, surprise 
and I use the politics and prose example in Charlottesville, that people feel emboldened. They feel emboldened to say and do things, um, certainly about Jews, but not only about Jews. And, and what starts with the Jews doesn't end with the Jews. Um, and someone who hates blacks and gays and, and women in hijabs or whatever it might be, um, I, I'm not so, I don't know that they, they'd be such a good friend in that way. Over on this side. My question, well, you've addressed a lot of it. I, it has to do with um, the weaponization of anti-Semitism and essentially Jews becoming human shields in the political scene. And I, I guess I'm curious of historical precedents because, it, again, it appears to me that one side is, I guess the right, is accusing the left of being anti-Semitic and while they are quite comfortable not liking Jews, you know. And have you seen this before in history? I, I've never seen it. You know, generally, um, I haven't seen it in this way or in the way that I can can think of it. Certainly there's been anti-Semitism. Certainly there's been attacks. Certainly uh, we were talking earlier about um, the Nazis and how they used you know, we're defending ourselves against the Jews. Uh, the Soviets were, were prime examples of, of using anti-Semitism. Where did Zionism, Zionism and race, is racism is the last legacy of the much unlamented USSR. It comes out of the USSR. The Zionism is racism. There's no more Marxist, you know, the, the Marxists are, are left floundering. Um, and because all the people who lived in Marxist countries were very happy to get rid of it. Uh, only the people living in Western democracies were, are happy Marxists. Um, but that, that Zionism is racism is, is a legacy of that. So I, I have never seen it in a way, um, A, coming from both the right and the left. And I've never seen it in a way where um, it's used, you know, th- that that I like with some of these tweets of of oh I'm a great friend of the Jews I'm a great supporter. We were never so wanted, you know. But but um, there's a, a verse in the Book of Proverbs directed to the bee, the devorah, the honey bee. Lomi duvshech, velomi uktsech. You know, don't give me your honey and don't give me your sting. Just leave me alone. Or I just saw Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. You should all go to New York and see it. It is fabulous. Um, and it's authentic. It's like translating back into the original because if Tevye had spoken any language, if Tevye had been real, he would have spoken Yiddish. But, you know, what's the blessing for the czar? May God keep the czar well and far away from me. Just leave me alone, you know? So, Deborah. Um, you started out by saying that you your eyes were opened by what happened in Charlottesville. Does it take some reflection and time for us as Jews to recognize the insidiousness of anti-Semitism that happened in Black Lives Matter, in the Me Too movement, and in the Antifa movement? Those things well preceded Charlottesville. BDS preceded Charlottesville. It's been on our campuses it, b- before it was called BDS. No, I think that we've been, many of us have been talking about the situation on campus for a very long time. It's not like we suddenly discovered it in the past two years. Um, 
Antifa, I, I'm, I'm very frightened, right? Absolutely. Well, absolutely no. And when I talk about the left and I talk about that view of the Jew, that's exactly, I mean, in, 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 in intersectionality, for instance, intersectionality started out as a very good idea, a very good way of looking at a problem. It goes back to a legal case that a black, African-American female auto workers, I think in a GM plant, brought against the plant because they couldn't get the good jobs on the assembly line because they were women and they couldn't get the good jobs in the front office because they were black and they said they were going to white. So they said our double identity intersects and puts us in this unique uh, position. So it started out as a good idea. Today, it means that if you are a, it, it's com- it's almost turned completely, not totally, but but very close to it, into an anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and often anti-Semitic um, movement. In Black Lives Matter, um, we saw it there. We saw it. I'll t- example, I talk about it in the book. On Columbia University, there was a uh, a, a group called uh, No Red Tape. It, it emanated from a, uh, a student who said she had been raped by another, a fellow student at Columbia, and that the university had put her through such red tape that she could never really bring charges. She's the one who walked around with a mattress for two years. Um, and uh, a student I know, very much on the left, but a but an ardent Zionist, went to a meeting of no red tape, and uh, she said, "I went because I I too had been a victim of sexual abuse, and I felt it was really important." She said, and suddenly it was turning into a pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel gathering. And she said, "Where did this come from?" And now she's not surprised by that at all. So clearly, it's there. It's and I say it's on the right and it's on the left. Um, Antifa, you know, should scare any of us because it's an anarchist movement uh, of the worst kind, um, and it's exactly the threat to democracy that that an anti-Semitism is a threat to democracy. Over on the left here. Yes. Getting back to Charlottesville again, which was uh, like a small Nuremberg rally from 1930. Are you at all surprised that following that, when the local NPR radio station had an hour-long program on Charlottesville, the only thing they talked about was the racial prejudice. They didn't say two words about anti-Semitism. And are you concerned that hate speech against Jews is not being treated as seriously in this country as hate speech against other groups, possibly getting back to the point you raised that Jews are not seen as victims, and therefore hate speech against them is not hate speech. That's right. Uh, no, I was not surprised. And yes, I am concerned. I think the, the thing is, and I think this is, again, I've, I spend a lot of time in England. I just came back about 10 days ago from a, a, a visit there. You were there as well. One of the big things is that uh, labor refuses to take it seriously. And you get that, you get that, you get that on certain campuses where you, where just, it doesn't, it doesn't, sometimes it's pure anti-Semitism and sometimes it just doesn't compute. How can these people standing in front of me who seem so privileged and so powerful, how can they be talking about being victims? It's, it's so, 
sometimes it's so deep in the in the weeds that that people will do things or say things without even recognizing they're anti-Semitic. I'm not saying this by way of saying, oh, therefore it doesn't matter. Not at all. What I'm saying by this is that the anti-Semitism, these tropes and these memes have so permeated the society that people take them for granted. And um, no, I was not surprised about that uh, failure to mention it. Um, sadly so. Or sometimes when it's mentioned, some people say, in what was considered to be an anti-Semitic statement, please drop the qualifications, you know. Uh, well, I just wanted to chime in and say we're running out of time here tonight, and we wanted to save some time for book signing. Please stick around and have your book signed outside. Thank you. Thank you.